Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past, be it the nuanced unpacking of individual stories or tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is your host, Saqib Ali, and today I'm joined by a repeat guest. It's an honor to bring back doubles star Rajiv Ram, who is just having a great year winning the U.S. Open, represented the U.S. in the Davis Cup, and he also won the Cincinnati tournament, won Monte Carlo this year. So, Rajiv, thank you for coming back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me again. No, I was just uh, thinking, you know, first we spoke was in Newport, and I was there in media capacity, and uh, you sat down with me after a match. I think that was the last time you were playing singles. A lot has happened at your end. Uh, you've been with you know, Joe Salisbury for like four years or more running. So talk about uh, the last few years, you know, uh, how you've been uh, doing on court and how the success has come. Yeah, you know, it's been uh, since, since that point. It was obviously a, a time when um, you know still playing singles and doubles, so it was, uh, it was quite a lot. And I just felt like I had to make a decision um, to pick one or the other. Uh, I felt like my, my body just couldn't handle both, and and if I wanted to extend my career further, I thought you know doubles was definitely the way to go. I never really gave it a, a full shot. So then, yeah, Joe and I started in 2019, um, a couple of years after that, and uh, yeah, it's been look, it's been it's been great. It's been a, a ton of fun to try and you know, get the partnership to a point where we feel like we're, we're one of the best in the world and uh, all the work that's gone into it has, has been quite rewarding for sure. And, you know, like when we spoke about in the second interview where I tried to take a deeper dive in understanding how you pick partners, etc. I'm sure longevity is something everybody wants to use as a building block. Now in the fourth season, you think you guys are getting better each year as understanding better. I mean, is there a thing like longevity that makes a team better or uh, sometimes, you know, you see very successful partnerships that don't last more than a year. So what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I do think longevity for me. And that, well, I, I think partially it's it's up to the person or the, or the two people involved. But I think for both of us, Joe and I, I think longevity is part of the reason that uh, we wanted to try and play together and also something that we both value and, and see ourselves continuously getting better. That's just sort of our attitude is that we're constantly trying to improve. Um, and I think one of the things that helps that is also the fact that we get along quite well off the court. You know, we... Uh, you know, we don't we don't spend every waking moment together, but we do get along and, and enjoy our time together. So that helps the fact that we you know can communicate and can do all the things that we know we need to do to, to keep improving on the court. Absolutely. And then uh, so let's, let's focus this here. You want to, I think, a second title on clay, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe one more. But Monte Carlo is a pretty big title. So why this year standing? So much, so much. I mean, you you won your first slam last year, but this year you have some big titles. So yeah, you feel I mean, the difference. Yeah, I mean, one of our goals actually at the end of last year was to to become better on clay, to do to do better because we feel like there's so many you know so many big tournaments to play, and we just weren't good enough. I mean, flat out, we weren't taking advantage of that season, and and we weren't good enough. And so we we really we made a focus. We even talked talked about going to South America in February to try and play a, a bit more on the surface to get better. We, we didn't end up doing that, but uh, um, you know, it was one of those things where we just practiced a little bit more, practiced with maybe a little bit more intention and, and a little bit more um, yeah, had a little bit more belief going into the, into the tournaments. Now, that being said, after Monte Carlo, we, we played pretty lousy for a little while, but uh, the fact that we were able to, 
to get through that one. And obviously it's a, it's a huge tournament to win a, a master's event on clay was a, was a very satisfying thing because it was one of our goals this year was, was to improve our, our clay core performance. Sure. If you don't mind taking a deeper dive, because a lot of folks who come to my podcast are tennis players themselves and they're like tennis geeks. So we all know like in singles terminology, the different styles and doubles is pretty much the same sport, but why is a particular surface for someone like you or your partner, why is that a challenge? I mean, are there different game styles? Are there different strengths, how you guys return? Or, I mean, just, uh, you know, just explore a little further for a, a sure. listener who, who may want to know more. Why is clay yeah. such a challenge? Yeah, sure. So I think for a lot of the people, there's, and once again, it's very individual, right? I mean, I don't think actually the surface speed or anything like that is the biggest problem for us or the biggest challenge for us. For Joe and I both, it's the movement. Um, the, the clay presents, you know, an incredibly different type of movement than a hard court would, because obviously it's a, it's a loose surface, right? There's, there's, you know, it's not a, it's not a surface that's very, um, you know, you can push off and be very true and be very, you know, comfortable in the movement. It's, it's a certain style and a certain way that, that the movement occurs that makes it, uh, yeah, unique. And so trying to find our way as to how we can best maximize what we can do movement wise on it was the biggest challenge and, and to be a little bit more comfortable with that. And, you know, I don't think we're ever going to be, you know, moving like the, the players that grew up on it, um, you know, do. And I think that was one of the things is we, we had to sort of accept that and say, okay, you know, what are we going to do? How can we best maximize our strengths and maybe not try and do that so much maybe not try and slide all the time and um you know play the way that the you know the best in the world do but but maybe if we do it our way it'll it'll maximize our chances and i felt like that's what we did a little bit better this year is just understanding how to best uh, you know move a little bit better and feel a bit comfortable under our feet so that we could actually play the tennis that we wanted to absolutely that kind of does make a lot of sense uh now since you explained it uh, one thing i noticed you know when you were playing with the uh class in, in 2017 I think mm-hmm. you were taking the deuce code now with Joe and even Granoliers, who you partnered briefly, you were taking returning on the ad code. And you told me you have to look for these kind of pairings. So did you give up something to gain these partnerships or you were always prepared to play the ad code? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think being a singles player, you know, for so long, I think it was a pretty, it, it was fine. You know, I was, I was pretty happy to play the ad court. I mean, I, I actually, when I was a junior, I played the ad court most of the time. And then I just sort of had partners along the way where they were better than me in the ad court. And so I just kind of went to the deuce court. So I wasn't really like, Oh, I have to be on this side or it won't work. I was, I'm pretty happy to, to try either. Cause like now in Davis cup, for example, when I play with Jack sock, I play the deuce court again. So it's a, it's a bit of a change. Cause obviously I play with Joe, you know, all the time, but it's not like I I'm totally uncomfortable with it. So, um, yeah, I feel like I have certain strengths that are, you know, better, in fact, on the ad side and just trying to maximize those as best as I can. And, uh, um, you know, was yeah pretty happy to to play that side because I think Joe's, you know, quite an effective deuce court player. Yeah, no, because I would think from my angle, and of course, most players start off as singles. You know, like, you know, we, you and I had talked about but I would think, you know, you're the pinnacle of the sport right now. So that would be a mental adjustment. But from what you're saying, you know, you played singles all your life. So it's okay to switch in a random week and go play deuce and then come back to ad code. It's not that big a mental switch, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not something I would want to do, you know, every week I'm switching and I'm playing on a different side for sure. That's not the case. But when we, you know, we started in the new partnership when Joe and I started the new partnership, it was like, you know, I wasn't 
absolutely set on, I have to play this side or, or it's not going to work. You know, I, I felt like I could be successful in either one. And like you said, I, I did pretty well with Marcel in that one tournament. And then, you know, Raven and I had a couple of decent years. So it was, uh, you know, I felt like I was capable of doing either one. Sure. So now, you know, you are, you have had your highest ranking, how scheduling, uh, change as you have, you know, your, your standards are lofty. You're hitting most of your goals. It seems like I'm sure you can still win more slams, but how do you schedule compared to say Rajiv Ram, who was scheduling in 2017 or 2018, maybe has things, have things changed? Yeah, you know, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, the results, the bigger tournaments are obviously what you know, everybody who plays tennis wants to shoot for. And the fact that we've been able to do that consistently over a few years means that, you know, we probably play a bit less. We probably play a few less of the smaller events and, and really do what we can to try and peak for the biggest events, which are for us, the four slams and, and the masters events. So, um, you know, that's really our goal and that's really where we want to play our best. It doesn't always mean that we're going to win. It doesn't mean anything to be honest, but uh, it just means that we want to feel like we're in the best form for those biggest, you know, those, the biggest tournaments of the season, um, which sometimes means taking a little break, you know, taking a bit of rest and, and not playing all the time. So it's uh, a luxury, I guess, in a way that we've afforded ourselves given the results that we've had. Do you feel you're playing your best doubles right now? And if yes, I mean, what is the future planning? I mean, you plan to play into your 40s? I mean, because tennis has gotten older. Like Federer is retiring this weekend. If not for the knee, he would be playing singles at 41. And same for, you know, Serena. And um, so what's your take on, you know, how how's, you know, aging happening in doubles? Yeah, I mean, I do feel like I'm playing the best tennis or doubles, you know, for sure of my career right now. Um, and I don't really worry so much about how old I am. I mean, it's, it's different as you age, you have to, you know, certain priorities become different as far as, as far as, you know, take care of your body and you can't practice with the same intensity or the same amount of time, but that's fine. I've been dealing with that for you know quite some time now. Um, and it's just about being smart about those things and how much time you spend with recovery and rest and, and all that. Um, but I'm not, I'm not trying to put a number on it and say, Oh, you know, if I play this long then that's it, or, or I don't want to play past this point or anything like that. It's just a matter of if I feel like I'm competitive and I'm, I'm, you know, at the level that I want to be at a respectable level and I'm enjoying it still, you know, I'll keep going no matter how, you know, what age I'm at, obviously, as we all know, I mean, Roger and Serena gave, you know, gave time a good run for its money, but it's still undefeated, you know? So at some point it is going to stop. I realize that. And I'm, I'm very well aware of it, but, uh, you know, for right now, I'm, I'm feeling great. Yeah, and again, you know, it's a cliche, but tennis is the most international sports given the travel, like continents, you know, are covered. And then you are almost out on the road if you want to, you know, be the best tennis players out there to achieve those rankings. So when I talked to you and Zainab in Montreal, you know, she was integrally, you know, a huge part of your travel. So how is how has the relationship with travel still for you both? I mean, is it something that's, uh, still a joy or, you know, there are days when, you know, you're traveling and you, you'd rather be home and because mostly stop are in Europe, then you go back to United States. Again, still being a U.S. player is more fortunate than say be someone like an Aussie or Russian where there are not many stops. So what's your relationship with the tour travel right now? Yeah. I mean, it's not easy. It's, it's funny. It's kind of one of the best parts of the job and, and one of the worst parts of the job as well, or probably the worst part of the job is that you have to, be on the road so much and you're dealing with jet lag and you're dealing with, you know, yeah, different things that are, that are not so enjoyable, but we do get to go to some pretty neat places and see some cool things and all that. But I think 
one of the things that's made it easier is that, you know, the schedule, like you said, has been a bit more predictable over the last couple of years. So I, I basically know more or less where I'm going to play and when I'm going to play um, for almost the entire year. And uh, so that sort of planning makes it a little bit nicer and I can build in, you know, breaks to take and, you know, give myself a rest so that I feel, you know, maybe excited is the wrong word, but I feel ready to go for the, for the next trip. Um, so that's been really helpful as opposed to before where it's like, you're just kind of having to, you know, play when you get in and, and the schedule was a bit more uncertain that that would be quite tough uh, at this point. So I feel like that's been a, a big help. So it's helped my relationship with, with the travel for sure to have a bit more of a set schedule. Yeah, that's good to know. Uh, you just came from Davis, like you had mentioned. So do you, uh, what, what is a player's consensus with the new format? It's one of the oldest team event we have in the sport and it got revamped for the third time in like less than what, on three years. Yeah. So, I mean, change is good. You know, like they look like Cosmos team acknowledged that something wasn't working, but as yeah. players, uh, what, what do you think? And what have you heard? Like, is this format here to stay? Um, it's a good question. I feel like, you know, it, it, it has lost something, no question to, to not have the home and away ties, you know, for sure. And it feels like one of the things that we're trying to have happen was that we don't play as many Davis cup ties perhaps during the year, because it felt like it was like, you know, somebody would win the Davis cup in, in December and then they could lose it in March or February or whatever it was, you know? So, but I also feel like that's sort of been missed a little bit because we, you know, we're, we played in March, we played in September, and now we're going to play again at the end of November. So it's, it's tricky, but I do feel like there's some portions of it that, that have been, you know, improved. So I, I don't know that it's going to stay um, the way that it is. I do feel like it's, like you said, the tradition is incredible and, you know, winning the Davis cup or even representing the country to play Davis cup has been always a, a dream of mine. So I'm quite fortunate to feel like the last you know, year and a half I've been, I've been able to do that. Um, I feel like there's mixed reviews, to be honest. Uh, I feel like depending on the person you talk to, some people, you know, will think it's not great. Some people will think it's it's better. Um, so I think there's mixed reviews. And I have a feeling that you're going to still see some changes happening over the next years. And it was a pretty big commitment on your part. I think you just won the Open and you travel across the pond to go do this because, you know, players reluctantly. And I think how traditionally the Davis Cup weeks have been slotted, they're always right after a major event. And because, you know, it's pretty much the ATP calendar versus the ITF calendar. And there's really no bargaining room because it's such a crowded calendar to begin with. So is that something? And, and again, you also, I think you played Joe there. So how was that experience, you know, having yeah. him across the net in first time in four years? And you guys, I think, scored the W, you and Sock, PDM and Murray? Yeah, it was quite an emotional, let's say, four or five days. because So we played the semis of the U.S. Open on Thursday, which was a three-hour and 15-minute match against the Colombians. Then we played the final on Friday, obviously you know, winning you know, huge emotion with that. The next day, we all flew. The four of us that played the final of the U.S. Open in doubles together flew to Scotland. So like literally the next day, we were on a plane to Europe, which I couldn't believe I was doing that. It was crazy to think that, you know. And then we practiced uh, – monday tuesday and then yeah we played great britain the first match in scotland in basically andy murray's hometown so you know we're playing you know jack and i against joe and andy in a live rubber you know deciding match in front of nine thousand people in scotland it was pretty surreal to be honest with you. it was an unbelievable mem- you know uh, feeling to just you know be on the court in that moment and then it was another you know seven five in the third type of match where i had to play joe which obviously added a little bit more for me and him so yeah, it was it was crazy. Um, you know, after all that, we just won the U.S. Open. Now we're having to do that and play for our countries and play a live match. It was 
it was pretty wild, but it was a, it was experience that uh, I will remember for a long time, for sure, especially since we were able to get the win. Absolutely. So between the few interviews I've done, you also had an Olympic medal added to your name a couple of years ago. I know, you know, you want to talk about that, what that meant and that partnership there? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was, it was more than a couple of years ago now. It feels like a long time ago. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, I, you know, first of all, tennis, whenever we get to play as a team sport and represent, you know, our countries, our respective countries, I think everybody, every player will tell you that it's special. So um, just to represent the countries you know, is pretty incredible. And then, you know, for me, I got to play with a legend like Venus Williams, who's been you know, the height of American tennis, you know, my whole career, um, was, was great. And then, you know, we end up winning a medal, uh, on top of it. Um, uh, quite honestly, it was not something I ever really thought of, you know, in tennis, you, you think of as a, as a child growing up, you think of Wimbledon, you think of us open, you think of the slams, you think of, you know, maybe, maybe some of the other big tournaments, but the Olympics is one of those things where it's not really in the forefront of your mind as a tennis player, but it, when you get an opportunity to play and do it, it's, it's maybe even more special. So the fact that I have a medal to my name, I, I almost still can't believe it. If you, if that makes sense, because it's not no, something totally I ever thought of, you know? Yeah, it totally does. It does occupy a uniquely special place. I mean, I've been a tennis fan since eighties, I've told you. And uh, as a, as a fan, of course, you know, I, the player I'm rooting for or my favorite players, I would rather have them, you know, save their best for majors or other tournaments. So Olympics was kind of it never sat well with me. I rather would watch Davis Cup uh, mm-hmm. from a national point of view because tennis entry was in 88. And for the longest time, you know, some of us believe, you know, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's nothing against tennis, but, you know, and, and I won't do a tennis podcast, but I don't think tennis really fits in there in my view. But, you know, when the names are there and you're playing for medals, and it's, of course, you know, you follow that. But so I can totally from far appreciate what you're saying that, you know, a medal is still a medal compared to other tournaments. So, so let's keep this conversation going. And uh, I was talking to a friend and uh, we were talking about, you know, majors and being ranked number one. So right now you're ranked number two in doubles, right? Right. So, and it's, uh, it takes a body of work to get there. So uh, the question is tricky, but, you know, I just want your view on this. What is harder to do, to win a major, to get number one ranking? And of course, someone would say winning three or four majors is harder. That I agree. But if, if, if you have to choose the two exercises, which is harder to do one major or, you know, to, okay, to get to the one? top of the ladder. Yeah. Uh, I would probably say getting to number one is more difficult than winning a single major. Um, I feel like, you know, you can... I mean, look, anytime you get through a Grand Slam, it's, it, it takes a little bit of luck. It, it, there's no question about it. Something has to break your way, some good fortune. I think the better players put themselves in a position for those breaks to go their way, but it still has to go your way. Um, but I think getting to number one or to the very top of the game, yes, but you know, number one for sure is, is a whole body of it. And I think that is a little bit more encompassing rather than a good break on, um, you know, in a, in a two week span, which I think can happen a little bit easier perhaps than, um, than what it takes to get to number one in the world. So I would, I would say if it's, if it's a difference of a single major and, and world number one, I, w- I would say world number one is tougher. Yeah. But are they both equally gratifying again from a total fans viewpoint, because we hear these things, especially we live in the era of the big three and every mm-hmm. statistic is, you know, like, yeah. Get magnified, so, isn't it? So yeah. magnified. Yeah. 
Um, boy, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I would say they are equally gratifying because look at the end of the day, like, you know, if, if someone tells you that you're the best in the whole world that, you know, anything, marbles, cards, whatever, like it's, it's pretty cool, you know? So let alone a sport, I think it's, it's, uh, it's an incredibly gratifying and humbling achievement for sure. And then I think, you know, the majors, as you say, are such an integral part of our sport and, you know, have so much history attached to it and all that. And if you're a tennis fan, you, you know, this is what you grow up watching and what you, what you grow up seeing and then, you know, put your name on a trophy is, is, it's gratifying, maybe in a slightly different way, but it's, it's gratifying nonetheless. I'd say both, both are, are, are quite equal. Hmm. Right. So again, trying to, to uh, remember mental notes from our last podcast, or the, one of the for first ones. So you said something, if I remember, back in the day, we talked about singles players playing doubles. You said, well, in one instance, Jack Sock and Nick Kyrgios, you know, had an easy time against you in Klassen. And now Nick Kyrgios is playing pretty much like a decent 60% double schedule. Mm-hmm. So... How do you prepare for those matches? Do you consider the Kyrgios Kokinak is now a legit pair or you still think they're going to bring flashes of singles brilliance and you can weather the storm or do you see them as a typical doubles competition now? Um, I, you know, I wouldn't say that they're typical doubles competition just because, you know, they're, they don't maybe play all the time and, and obviously they play a slightly different style than, uh, than the other doubles guys do. But I think they're, an incredibly formidable pair, obviously. I mean, they won a grand slam this year. They, you know, they've been very difficult to beat for basically every team that plays them. And, and Nick's playing some of the best singles he's ever played for sure. So I, I don't think that there's any doubting the fact that they're, you know, they're an incredibly difficult team to play against. Um, I think it's, a, I think it's just a slightly different style, maybe a slightly different mentality, but it's doesn't make it any, less easy I, I in fact in some ways it probably makes it more challenging for sure absolutely so you mentioned the colombians you know a few minutes ago when we were talking about yeah. the u.s open uh talk about either them or any pair that you know you have a special history with or you guys get you get up for that, that match and of course you're professionals you get up for every match but mm-hmm. are there any matchups that you and joe enjoy in terms of rivalries that are going around on the atp tour in doubles yeah we were actually asked this question the other day i can't remember what it was sometime impressed my for me the, you know, the Colombians are one of them for sure. They've been a longstanding team. They, they play great tennis. They've been world number ones. They, you know, they try hard. They bring their, they bring great energy and all that all the time. And we played them, boy, I don't know, maybe six or seven times, I think, um, over the last, you know, number of years. But I would say for us specifically as a pair, it would be the uh, Croatian pair of, of Mektic and Pavic. We, we played them seven times last year uh, alone and they, they, they got the better of us for the first five actually. And it was, uh, you know, we were always seated kind of like one, two or one, two or three somewhere in there. So we would end up playing at the ends of the big tournaments. I think we played, you know, finals of Rome, semis of Miami and, you know, finals of Toronto and semis of the, you know, the semis of Wimbledon last year. So, you know, we ended up playing them in, in quite meaningful matches, I would say. And, and they were so good for the first part of last year. It just kind of was like something that we really, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how can we beat these guys, you know, and we ended up winning the last two of the season. And, um, you know, it was quite, yeah, it was quite a big deal for us, but I, I feel like we haven't played them this year, funnily enough, but it, it just feels like those matches, we both teams generally get up for them because I think uh, there's, a, there's a lot of respect there and there's a lot of uh, uh, admiration, if you will. Okay, so pardon my ignorance, you know, I should know more about this, but I'm going to ask this question. So is yeah. the, are the margins in the double sport like so less? And my case study is when you guys won the US Open, I put a tweet out there myself. 
that you were the first player since the Woodies to have defended the title. Mm-hmm. So why is it so hard to defend these big titles? Is uh, is the field that even? Is the field that competitive? You know, I, I think so. And I also think that to your point earlier, we've been so skewed. I honestly think it's skewed by this last era of, of the big three or the big four, or whatever you want to say, because they make defending titles once seem like commonplace. You know, it's like if you haven't defended the title five times, you haven't really done anything special. You know what I mean? But if you look back in the 90s or the 80s, like, you know, OK, yeah, you know, Borg won Wimbledon, you know, five times in a row or, or whatever it is. But it wasn't so easy for for players even in that generation as great as they were whether it was pete or andre or or uh you know some of these other on the men's side especially to to defend titles so i think um i think the margins in tennis are generally small they haven't been so small for these top players and i think that just speaks to their the greatness of it but for us in the doubles game i mean i i, I think you know top to bottom there there are a lot of teams that can win these big titles and so i think that's why you see it you know the, that's why you see players not defending them um because it just is not that easy and then the other side of it in the doubles is that people do switch partnerships right so so mm. you know a team might play together for four or five years and then you know they may play with somebody else or whatever it is like that but uh you you do see that happening so it may not be as easy because you may not be competing with the same player necessarily all right so that brings me to my next question best of three or so best of five Wimbledon is one of the few majors that does best of five right in doubles it's the only it's one the- yeah if it's not, was it, if it was best of three, you guys would be in the finals. You blew a two-set lead. <laughs> yeah, we did. We sure did. Blew it nicely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I didn't want to take a dig there, but I mean, that's, yeah. that must be a painful way to, to process a loss. But uh, are there conversations, you know, that players participate, I mean, in, in your view, to make it best of three? Or, or are you a fan of best of five? You don't mind going the distance one, one fortnight a year? So my opinion personally is that I think a slam should be best of three until probably the quarterfinals and then best of five seems appropriate after that. I feel like best of five the whole way through is a bit, a bit long. It's a bit overkill. Um, I know there's time in between, you know, there's mat majors are very, um, you know, two weeks long and there's plenty of time to play it, but that's just my personal opinion. Um, but I'm, I'm not opposed to it either way. I think it makes Wimbledon quite special. And I think it, uh, you know, it, it makes it so where the better team on the day wins. And, and like you said, in that semifinal, unfortunately, we, we were better for the first. It felt like, you know, three quarters of it, definitely half of it. And, and we didn't win because um, because of the best of three, four, best of five format. Excuse me. So um, I do feel like, you know, there's no real wrong answer here. I think it's just a matter of opinion. But but that would be my opinion is all the majors would i would love to see it be best of three until the quarterfinals and then and then the last three rounds of the major would be best of five i think that would be pretty cool yeah i think that would be and uh that would probably produce uh world-class tennis because a lot of times fans is warming up to a match and uh again i can speak for myself and you want more but uh that's definitely uh, one way to consider all right so let's yeah. wrap this conversation up uh if you have any anecdotes and the two Hall of Fame retirees, Serena and Roger, um, if you want yeah. to share with the listeners any any moments that are not on any podcast or any article, you know, you know them probably both. So mm-hmm. if you want to, you know, give a couple of anecdotes here, I think the podcast would be a richer experience. Sure. Um, obviously, yeah, personal admiration for them both. I mean, they're both a couple of years older than me, so I got the privilege of seeing them 
my entire professional career uh, up close, but I think obviously, you know, people see what they can do on the tennis court. That goes without saying. Um, one, one quick Serena story. We were on the Olympic team together the same year that I won that medal with Venus. She was on the team as well, Serena. So I, you know, you kind of get to know somebody in a little bit more of a personal setting and, uh, one of the funny memories I have of her is, you know, in the Olympics, you go around, and you exchange pins with other countries and, um, you know, just as like a, I guess, a show of solidarity, if you will, you know, for you know Olympians from all over the world. And Serena's probably the biggest star in the entire Olympics. I mean, maybe some of the U.S. <laughs> basketball players, perhaps, but I mean, she's right up there, right? Maybe Usain Bolt, but she's top five, no question. And she was running around in, in the Olympic area, like exchanging pins with anyone and everyone she could find. And these people, when she would come up to them, were just so starstruck to see that Serena Williams was actually asking them for something. And like it was just she wanted these pins so badly from all these different countries that she could find. And she didn't care what anyone else thought. It was just like the coolest thing to see all these other people just seem so taken aback by the fact that Serena was, you know, asking them for something. But it was just so cool for on my end to see you know here's this legend and you know she's you know in that spirit of the olympics you know seeming like that was something that she really wanted to do and she wanted to remember that and you know she could do whatever she wanted and it wouldn't matter and she was that interested in uh you know in in doing that with the with the pins at the olympics so that was really neat and then uh roger one personal memory um you know my father like i was just speaking about he 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 had had a battle with cancer a number of years ago and, and passed away from it, unfortunately. But, uh, when he first got diagnosed, uh, you know, I just thought it would be something cool. You know, if I could get some of the tennis players to just, you know, send him, send him a message saying, you know, get well and whatnot. And, um, so I asked Roger for it and he sat down with me and he asked me about it and he asked me how I was doing and, you know, said how he's never dealt with that in his family, but, you know, just took the time to actually, you know, ask me about it. And then he said, okay, let's film this video. It was just after a match in Indian Wells and took, you know, called my dad by his name and said, I hope you get well. And, and, you know, we're all, you know, we're all rooting for you and all that. And it was just, uh, it was quite a moment because he's Roger Federer and he didn't have to do that. And, um, actually took the time to, uh, to make a little video for my dad and I sent it to him and, and my dad thought it was the, you know, one of the greatest things he's ever seen. So that was, that was just the kind of guy that, that Roger is, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, both stories are, you know, uh, really wonderful details. And I would like to add the, to the Federer part. I did a podcast with a fellow colleague who's actually coached on the tour. And he told me something. He's also been a journalist. He told me something what he just said. You know, Federer is one of those guys. He's genuinely interested if he talks yeah. to anyone. And of course, you are not anyone. You are a fellow colleague of his. You're on the tour. But yeah, that kind of solidifies what I learned yesterday. No, those, yeah. are, those are both wonderful stories. Yeah, pretty amazing. And I, I've heard that about Roger in the press room as well. He does, you know, interviews in all of the languages that he knows. He never says no to anybody. And he just is, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a reason that he's probably considered the greatest ambassador of, or of our sport, at least on the men's side, you know, certainly in my generation, but possibly ever. And, yeah, he just seems to always do the right thing when it comes to that stuff. So, yeah. Oh, thank you, Rajiv. That was wonderful. I think that was a putting icing on the cake. This podcast was good. You were spontaneous and you know generous with your time. I enjoyed this, and I'll and hopefully you know I'll I'll host you again in you know in the near future. In the meantime, you know get your game ready and uh, you know go for the number one ranking. Hopefully you you have more success in the double scope. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And, uh, I love being on here as always. <laughs>